This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's an interesting meeting at Hamilton City Council yesterday afternoon. A number of issues were discussed, of course. The, uh, I guess, final uh, vote this time around anyway, but uh, bidding on the Commonwealth Games, and that was resoundingly defeated yesterday, so that one's off the table. But there was still some discussion about the Waterfront Trust. Uh, Councillor Donna Skelly says she will introduce a notice of motion for a forensic audit to look into the Waterfront Trust finances uh, at a GIC meeting, which is coming up next month. Uh, Councillor Skelly joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Donna. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Let's uh, talk a little bit about, first of all, your interest and your concern in the trust. Uh, this is something that uh, that you've uh, been talking about for the last couple of weeks. What do you look for now? And and let's, let's assume that this motion does get presented. Notice a motion and, and actually presenting the motion uh, can be two different things. But let, let's go down that road for a minute. What are you looking for here? What I'm looking for is to address this uncertainty and all of these questions that have arisen over the past number of years, but have certainly come to a head this past summer, uh, with a tremendous amount of media attention directed at the trust. Part of the reason for that, of course, is the trust has come forward asking for uh, uh, restructuring its board of directors and expanded authority over publicly owned space and projects in the multi-billion dollar development that we are going to be uh, moving forward with on our waterfront. Now, the recently, and or I shouldn't say recently, over the course of the summer, a number of media outlets had been asking for access to the minutes of the board meetings. And there were a lot of reasons why those minutes weren't presented to the media outlets. Uh, but they will be. So this is good news. I think what's happening now is is the board realizes that uh, they have to present this information and perhaps be a little bit more transparent with financial statements, with minutes. They are going to be uh, handed over to the clerk's office, I understand, by the end of today, and that the media will then have access to it. So although this sounds like it's punitive, it's not. What I'm hoping that this exercise, this Notice of motion will simply do, and hopefully it will get passed. I'm not sure if it will, but if the motion is passed, we'll be able to address this cloud that is lingering over the waterfront trust. I think it's unfortunate and uncomfortable for people who work for the trust, who sit on the board, who have to answer these questions continually. And I think that this would simply provide those answers and once and for all set all of uh, the taxpayers' minds at ease. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's that cloud that you're referring to here, I think, is, is the crux of what's going on here. Uh, I, as you, Donna, I know a lot of the people that work for the trust. I know some of the people that sit on the board, and and uh, they're dedicated people. I have no problem with them individually. Uh, but my concern has always been transparency. Uh, let us know what's going on. And, and I really get the sense over the last couple of years right now that the trust itself, even by this this uh, request that they put to city council now for expanded leadership role in this uh, project coming up here, seven and eight, it's almost like they're looking for a way to justify their existence now, and and I'm not so sure that they can do that. Exactly, the money for building trails ran out years ago once the trails were completed, and it it almost appears as if the the trust was justifying its existence. Perhaps this is the best way to operate that land. Maybe it's not. But there have been some issues along the way in its, in its uh, history. For example, back in, I believe it was 2005, it may have been a little later, 
uh, sloppy accounting of their financial statements, of their bookkeeping, led to auditors um, uh, deeming an adverse opinion of their of their uh, financial statements, and that's a a very um, unusual, unique designation, and it's not a pretty designation. It means that there's something wrong, and we haven't been given an explanation as to why that particular year the books were, were given this adverse opinion, and I'd like an explanation on that. I'd like an explanation and further information on the relationship with the Hamilton Conservation Authority from its inception forward. Why isn't the only existing uh, eatery, the Williams Cafe, not making more money? Uh, a number of restaurateurs said, you know, it's difficult to make money for sure, but it is a standalone operation on on the waterfront in Hamilton. It's a beautiful destination. It's the only place you can get something to eat and something to drink. Should it be making more money? And if it should, why isn't it? So these are questions I think that we want answers to, certainly things that I'd like to see answers to. And once again, it's to lift this cloud over the trust one way or the other, if we're moving forward and truly going to give them, expand their their uh, governance over this this um, project, the waterfront development, then we need to have these questions answered. And if not, then we will reclaim the authority of, of, of this land. But let's let's lift this cloud, let's be transparent, let's find out right back to inception, have some answers to the questions that are, are lingering right now. Why has Council been so defensive anytime anybody questions the Waterfront Trust? Uh, that hasn't been my experience since I've raised the issues. I've had uh, a great deal of support, actually, amongst my fellow councillors. There has been some pushback, uh, and rightfully so. I think that the board members are defensive because they believe in the work that they're doing, and, and, I, and I give them that credit, and I think that they shouldn't have to defend themselves if there isn't anything uh, untoward happening at the Waterfront Trust, then let's let's make that very clear so that taxpayers are comfortable uh, with our leadership and with the leadership of the trust. It is our responsibility as a council when issues like this arise to address them and to find out um, if there are indeed problems with something. We have to go after it. We have to seek answers and we have to be transparent and we have to make this public that is our job. That's what my job is. I wouldn't feel comfortable as a city councillor not pushing for answers to this. And I wouldn't feel comfortable as a city councillor not asking for a very um, thorough examination or audit, forensic audit, of something that has raised this many red flags in such a short period of time. Well, one subject that you haven't touched on that, that I'd like to see some answers to, too, is the rather uh, questionable relationship that uh, the Trust has had with Sarkoa and the people that ran that restaurant about what was promised, not promised, etc. I mean, there's a, there's a lawsuit that's, that's pending right now. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But clearly, since the Waterfront Trust doesn't have their own legal department nor a budget for that sort of thing, that pretty much puts Hamilton taxpayers on the hook for what may or may not happen in a situation like that. I mean, there's, there's a long list of things that I think need to be answered and addressed in, in a situation like this. But, you know, in the past, you know the history here, Donna, going back to your days in the media, because you, you covered an awful lot of this stuff, when other people have decided to ask for audits or forensic audits, as you are, uh, they were rebuffed by counsel. Is it going to be any different this time? I hope not. I'm not sure if I will be. I will make my case. I think that that enough, again, enough questions have been raised. There's been enough media attention. When you have this 
many unanswered questions, I think we need to step back and pause and say, what is the right thing to do? I understand it will come at a cost. A forensic audit is not cheap, but you do have to pay sometimes to ensure that that we are following the rules. I mean, this is money I believe would be well spent. Uh, I'm not one to throw away money and, and to waste money, but this, to me, would not be a waste. I think it would be money well spent. And I think it would really, um, I think it would help the board clarify that nothing is happening or perhaps uncover some issues that should be changed, should be addressed, and give counsel greater understanding, more information, and and uh, more insight when we decide whether or not we should continue funding the, uh, the Waterfront Trust. You know, even the report that Council dealt with the other day about consultants, and I know that's another subject that uh, that uh, you've been very vocal about in the last little while. I mean, there was a segment in that presentation, Donna, as you recall, uh, that indicated that even then, I mean, the Waterfront Trust received a, an amount of money from city departments uh, without a business case. In other words, they circumvented the rules. I mean, I, we just need to know what is the relationship and, and what who's doing what, where are they spending the money. Uh, and an audit, as you know, is, is, is a rather, well, that's, that's fine. I mean, you know, they say, well, we get audited all the time. But, I mean, that's a presentation of numbers. You need more an analysis, I think, to find out exactly where the money came from, how it's being spent, and who's spending it. Absolutely. We need to know line by line. Who's on the payroll? Where's the money going? Why did we buy this? The fiasco over the um, Zamboni. Uh, there are a number. There are a list of things that that we need to know. You know the 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 fact that the relationship between Sarcoa and the Waterfront Trust ended in an absolute disaster with bridal parties and people who had booked um, space being um, shut out and, and, and when the doors were shuttered and and a lawsuit that has now ensued between the previous owners of the the restaurant and the Waterfront Trust. The fact that I believe the city's been on the hook for about $100,000 in legal fees. Uh, I'm not sure of that because I'm just getting the latest um, information, uh, the financial statement, but I understand that somebody has paid for that $100,000, that legal bill. Uh, But I'm hoping that this change in releasing the minutes is, um, is... is is a, an example of let's cooperate a little bit more. We understand that perhaps we didn't intend it to be a veil of secrecy, but there there was this perception of a veil of secrecy around the trust. Let's be more transparent. Let's really tackle the concerns that have been brought forward. We want you know, and and I do feel for my my fellow colleagues who are sitting on the board having to defend the trust. Um, so why not, as I said, why not bring in a forensic auditor, bring in an independent person who can delve through this, who is qualified? Uh, you don't know what you don't know. And that's why we need an expert in to, to look at the numbers and to look at the history of the evolution of the trust and the relationships between, as I said, one thing I found very interesting was the relationship between the conservation authority and the trust itself and monies and and you know work orders etc so let's go right back to the very beginning and and have someone who is independent who understands this type of thing delve into it and once and for all deal with this issue why with what's going on with the waterfront now why isn't this just being done by city staff i mean the the mandate of the waterfront trust uh, is to well they say helping hamiltonians connect with the waterfront that's rather ambiguous uh, it was essentially set up to allocate the funding that came from the settlement from the federal government. That's long gone, as you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. 
Uh, and I think a lot of people are rightfully questioning why we even need a waterfront trust at this stage when effectively all they're doing is the work that the city would have done. And as a matter of fact, it's being funded by the city anyway. And my, excuse me, my concern over that is the fact that we don't have control over uh, the vision and who we would be signing deals with and who would be occupying space and what that space would look like. That is something that I think that the city should have control over and should be authorized to oversee. I don't like it being uh, handed out to a third party, actually, and that, that is something I would prefer that the city actually um, you know, reconsider the trust's uh, operation moving forward and bring that that control back under city staff's direction. I mean, I keep using the analogy of, of, of what happened with HECFI, and I still think that's well put, because council made the decision that, look, we shouldn't, as a city council, be in the entertainment business. That's not our strength. That's not what we're supposed to do. Uh, we can own the facilities, but let's get somebody in who knows what they're doing. Uh, do you really and truly think, given the city's financial pressures right now, that we should be in the restaurant business? No, and that's one of the reasons why I don't think returning a profit, or as much a profit, it's lost money. It's, it's, I believe it's, it's um, made a little bit of money in the last year, about forty or 50000 Is that enough? Should it be making more? Is it, a, is it not considered a prime location for a restaurant when you have no competition on a waterfront? I think it should be generating revenue. Again, I, I agree with you. I don't think that the city should be running it. Uh, but we need to look at those books and find out why it hasn't been turning a profit. And our, and, and not just that, but other things. And we, we need to have greater oversight moving forward and going backwards, looking at what has transpired since its inception. And that has to be done. Otherwise, this, this cloud will continue to linger. We can say you know, do piecemeal work and say, well, you know, we can't afford the forensic audit or, you know, we trust, we trust people on the trust. I don't think that that's good enough. Uh, we are, um, I'm uh, upholding to the taxpayers of my ward, uh, of Ward 7, and also the city of Hamilton. And I think that they expect us to uh, have greater oversight and to provide, be more transparent when we're dealing with millions of dollars that have flown through the waterfront trust. Well, that's the point, Donna. Listen, I know because one of your colleagues uh, went on the record uh, who's not supporting your motion, apparently, and said, well, there's no smoking gun. Maybe not a smoking gun, but this has become a money pit over the last number of years, and that's our money. I think we have a right to get some answers here. I'm not looking for a smoking gun. I'm just looking for a, a, a clear understanding of how this trust has evolved since its inception, where it went right, what things it did that were right, what went wrong, are there lessons to be learned, should those minutes, for example, something as simple as the minutes, should they have been posted all along, why did it lose its, uh, why was the charity status annulled, why was it a charity in the first place, uh, there's nothing wrong with this, if somebody made a mistake, somebody made a mistake, we all make mistakes, but when you refuse to come forward with this information, or perhaps your uh, way of, of dealing with the public and the media and answering these questions isn't as transparent as most people expect it to be, then this, this perception starts to build of, of secrecy, of a veil of secrecy, of what are they hiding. And that's what I'm trying to say. Let's show that we're not hiding anything. Take a look at the books. Come and look at it. We've done nothing wrong. And, and then I think everybody can... can uh, breathe a sigh of relief and say we have been transparent. We've done our job as representatives of 
of Hamilton taxpayers, and we've looked into everything. We can assure you that everything's on the up and up, and uh, this is what we've learned. This is where we went wrong. This is what was great about it, and 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 it's transparent. We're all on the same page. Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly, uh, good luck with this, Donna. We'll stay in touch uh, as this goes down the road. I appreciate Thanks. the time today. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Income growth in the city was the highest of Ontario's five largest metropolitan areas, according to census data that was released from uh, Stats Canada. Uh, that includes a drop in the poverty rate, too. So that sounds like a good news story, but there are some things that we need to talk about here because it's not all good news when you look at some of this data. Joining us to assess this is uh, Sarah Mayo, Social Planning and Research Council and uh, the City of Hamilton, of course. Sarah, thank you for uh, coming back on the program. Good to have you with us today. Thank you. Anytime, Bill. Listen, uh, before we get into some of these numbers, I, I, I'm just going to lay a concern that I have every time that we have yeah. this report from Stats Canada. Uh, when Stats Canada does these assessments, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they call this the Metro Hamilton area. Uh, but that includes Burlington and Grimsby. And I love Burlington and Grimsby. They're fabulous places. But I think it skews the numbers a little bit because it's 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 really kind of an apples and oranges comparison uh, with their situations and ours. Absolutely. I'm glad you're making that distinction. So us at the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, we try as much as possible to look at the data for the city of Hamilton. Um, but, you know, certainly media, um, like sort of a broader... Uh, uh, geographic area because they're they're covered. They have listeners in Burlington and 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 uh, so th- so they they often use w- uh, data for a, a, a larger area. But um, and and it is true, you know, certainly in Hamilton and Burlington have very different incomes. Uh, Hamilton's individual uh, uh, median income is about thirty two thousand. In Burlington, it's about forty two thousand. So it's a a huge, um, a huge difference between these communities in terms of income. Yeah, and, and I'm not looking at this with rose-colored glasses. I mean, because I've I've talked to Mayor Goldwing and others on council in Burlington, and and they have a poverty issue and they have a housing issue, many of the same problems. But it's it's a, it's a different kind of issue. It's a, and, and it's a different perspective, uh, a different dynamic, uh, and and some of the solutions may well be the same. But when you're right, I mean, the the, the wider you cast this net, I think that the actually the less clear the picture becomes. Yeah, each community has has. A different income uh, picture, and and so different organizations in different communities try to focus on those. And so in Burlington, the um, Community Development Halton, uh, our sort of sister organization, does a lot of uh, data just on Burlington mm-hmm. and Halton. All right. So that being said, let's let's look at this report and these numbers. Uh, there is some some positive news, some in, but still some challenges. Let's 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 deal with the positive stuff here first of all. The poverty rate has dropped from eighteen point one down to sixteen point seven in the last decade. Uh, that's a good thing. How did that happen? Yeah. So I mean, just a bit more on 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 data issues. There, we're we're still kind of looking at. We we haven't released anything final on that because of the changes in the um, the poverty measure. Um, and but yes, definitely there seems to be a clear decrease, which is uh, obviously good news. Um, because of population growth, it's not a, a huge decrease in the number of people. And what matters the most is really, you know, the individual people experiencing poverty, um, not not just the statistics. And so if, if the number of people isn't changing that much, that's... Uh, that's not a good thing, but um, 
but but what we're concerned about is that we you know people move uh, sometimes uh, for good reasons and because they want to, but more and more it seems like people are moving because they don't want to, but they just can't afford to live here anymore because our rents are increasing so much. Um, and if if you're lucky enough to be in social housing, which has its problems and and is of lower quality often, and and there's more funding needed there, but at least you're protected um, from predatory landlords. But in the private market, which is most of the affordable housing in Hamilton. Um, landlords are becoming more and more picky about uh, who 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 comes in and 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 trying to you know encourage in subtle and not so subtle ways of uh, people moving out. You know we've heard of buildings. Uh, oh, the the laundry machine is closed. Uh, you know for indefinitely, um, and and so people kind of are are forced to. Uh, or, or other other tactics to to get uh, existing tenants to move out. Well, this is this is the problem with with statistical reports like this. So you look at a number like this, and at first blush, say, "Hey, this is great. It's uh, you know poverty rates from eighteen point one all the way down to sixteen point seven. That's good." But does that mean those people are are no longer uh, below the poverty line, or does that mean that some of the people that were below the poverty line have just gone someplace else? Yeah, that's you, you don't. The numbers don't tell you that. Not yet. We're hoping that later on, when the census data is fully released, and then we'll we can do some custom requests for custom data sets, we'll be able to track that a bit more because the census does ask, "Where did you live a year ago? Where did you live five years ago?" Mm-hmm. So hopefully, we will be able to better understand that picture. Um, but meanwhile, there's still, you know, um, uh, upwards of 88,000 people living in poverty in Hamilton. Now, 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 you see, now there's a more important number. Yeah. When you say 16.7, you figure, oh, it's gone down. 88,000 yeah. people is a lot yeah. of people in this city. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, And in terms of children, it's one in five children, more than one in five children living in poverty, um, more than one in ten uh, seniors. So it's, um, it's an absolute, uh, it's still a very important priority. Uh, let's let's look at some of the other numbers here too, uh, and and median income is is part of this. You touched on that very briefly, Sarah, at the beginning of our conversation, uh, but it's it's a number that does matter. It's it's just how much money that, that people are earning, uh, and I think it's uh, very timely in in light of the com- conversation we're having now about minimum wage going up, about mm-hmm. living wage in some parts of the community, uh, and things of that nature. Yeah, so um, we're seeing um, in general uh, uh, median income. So median income is uh, half the population makes more, half the population makes less, and this is only people age 15 and over that they count in income. And um, we're seeing that Hamilton uh, still has lower uh, median incomes than Ontario, um, but it is growing um, at a faster rate than Ontario. Um, So we're catching up, which is good. Um, but we haven't, you know, we're, we're still, that doesn't mean it's increasing for everybody. We know that there are certain groups for which it's decreased, uh, uh, it's likely to have decreased and some groups where it's increased more. So we're going to, over the next uh, few months, as more data is released, look at that. Because like you say, the, the just the general number doesn't tell you the whole story. And, it, and, you know, you certainly, lots of people feel like, wait a minute, my income didn't increase. And yeah, absolutely, it's not, it doesn't mean that we're, uh, you know, because the median went up that, oh, you know, everything's great. Um, we know that lots of people have lost um, jobs and are, have, have been moved to minimum wage jobs. Um, and, and so that's why the increase in the minimum wage is so important as a tool to increase incomes, because more and more people are, are, are very close to that line. And and then therein lies part of the problem again when when you're looking at numbers like this and when you start to look at different areas within this metropolitan Hamilton area mm-hmm. in Grimsby in Burlington, uh, it's great to see growth. I mean, uh, you know, on the national picture, I think Newfoundland went up like twenty one percent. 
Uh, and that sounds like, wow, boy, they're doing great. Well, yeah, look where they started. Uh, yeah. And that's that's something that you have to factor in on these numbers as well. Yeah, and, and median income... Um uh, is uh, you know in in, in uh, nationally is certainly uh, pushed enormously by Alberta and Saskatchewan and the resource economy um, and Ontario you know doesn't have that uh, economic base and and doesn't have manufacturing like it did and so is moving towards a more diversified economy but in that transition it's it's definitely a difficult transition and and more needs to be done to support people who who are moving from manufacturing jobs to other type of work. The other element here, too, when we start looking at some of these numbers and, and obviously asking the, the question, well, how does this happen? Why does this happen? Uh, to a certain extent, I think we have to give the city some credit here for, for looking at some of these things years ago and developing policies. And maybe we're starting to see some of the fruits of, of that decision making, like like a more diversified economy, things like that, to kind of put us on the right track. Yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, you, uh, it's always it's always hard to know. There's not never one thing that contributes and that that is the solution. Everything uh, that you can attribute a change to, and everything contributes. And 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 cities that have a long-term vision and and see these change happening and 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 put um, and put aside the kind of everyday little um, petty disputes and say we're all going to work towards a vision of a more um, um, uh, 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 an economy that gives opportunity for everyone. Uh, and Hamilton has done some steps in that. Yeah, we'll certainly see some re- rewards. I mean, Hamilton has been named by the Chamber of, not the Chamber of Commerce, the Conference Board of Canada as having the most diversified economy in Hamilton. Um, but, you know, most diversified, that's good. That means that, w- that we ride out recessions more because we're not um, tied to one sector of the economy as much. But at the same time, that doesn't, a diversified economy of, um, you know, lots of low-wage service work and, and lower-wage manufacturing work and, um, and uh, it, it doesn't mean it's a, you know, that's not the perfect goal. You know, we, we really have to see more increases in income before people will really be satisfied with the economy. On a national level, and let's talk about how this relates to Hamilton as well, though, one of the more troubling parts of this report is a shift in poverty, a smaller proportion of children living in poverty, but growing number of seniors below the poverty line. Yeah, um, that is definitely a, a concern in terms of seniors, absolutely. We see as well that nationally they, we don't have this locally, but nationally they had this very interesting graph of every single individual age group. So you see this big increase um, in poverty, especially among um, like 55 to 64, because if you um, are, um, you know, being laid off at that time and have to rely on social assistance, social assistance rates are so terrible that um, uh, you're really um, in deep poverty. But then at age 65, um, your income goes up because, um uh, CPP and OAS and GIS. So we have these public policies that do help people um, get uh, imp- improve their income. And similarly, children, we see, you know, part of the reason uh, child incomes uh, or, or child poverty has decreased is that there has been a, a public push through, uh, more recently through the CC, the federal child benefits, but even, and that's not really counted in this 
uh, data, but the OCB that, that Ontario put in uh, was important, and previously there had been other uh, child benefits. So, so we know that there are we know the policies that that can help people lift people out of poverty, and 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 we're um, you know always pushing for for more to be done on that. Well, some of us predicted uh, the, the the poverty problem with the, with seniors, especially uh, back in 0809 when the recession was uh, really starting to to hit its peak, I guess, and uh, and then part of that was because an awful lot of people's pensions were eroded and. Some cases eliminated altogether, and that nest egg that they thought they were going to have in retirement is no longer there, or just a a small portion of it is right now. And uh, boy, it's got to be tough for a lot of those people to make ends meet. Yeah, and I I, I think you're right in terms of the uh, seniors who are living now were working at a time where pensions were much better. Um, but as people now in their working age who don't have, um, and, and there's, they're not all great, and certainly, um, you know, they've, there's a huge risk uh, for the Stelco pensions, especially um, that is a big concern. But um, they were, you know, in general, on average, they're, 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 they're living with, with better pensions than it looks like the next generation of seniors is going to be living with. Um, and that's a huge concern. And, and again, public policy, you know, there, there are, there are um, people in government who are realizing this problem. And so that's why the CPP, um, you know, Ontario pushed a lot for a, an improved CPP to, um, because people didn't have as much workplace pension, to improve um, the maximum income you'd be able to get from uh, public pensions. Um, it's not going to fully solve the problem, but um, uh, and uh, you know things like uh, increased unionization. Um, that hopefully uh, the way the the provincial government is is going to make it easier for for people to join unions uh, will will be helpful for that too. Hopefully. Well, and we're starting to have some discussions, maybe because some of these numbers are starting to to come home to roost now for elected officials. Uh, so we're starting to have discussions about things like a pharmacare program and things of this nature, which are added pressures. I understand in Ontario there's there are programs that that help seniors for things like that, but in, on on a much more macro basis, uh, we still have to start looking at things like that right now. And and I know that people are going to say, well, you know, that, there's a cost to this, but these numbers indicate there's a cost to not doing some of that stuff too. Oh, uh, there's a huge in terms of pharmacare. Uh, the uh, the savings that can be had from uh, from just from the pooling of uh, um, of buying drugs uh, through a single source um, will that alone can be a huge savings um, overall. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's just, it's just like education. We could all pay for it ourselves, and um, but we've decided that we want to have a service that is um, accessible to all, that is uh, of higher quality and worth paying for. Um, as a as a part of our our life to our quality of life and and we all want to have um, you know improved quality of life and 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 if we can pay for it in a fair way that doesn't impact people who are uh, struggling uh, that 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 would be a really uh, important thing to do. Where look at this now? You've had a chance to digest some of these numbers right now, Sarah. What, what's your evaluation? Where are we now in in twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, with uh, with what we need to do to to try to improve the quality of life in this community? Well, I think we really still have to pay attention much more to people who are struggling um, because these, you know, it looks like we're we're improving, you know, certainly compared to the average in Ontario. But but um, Ontario, as an average, has been struggling, and Hamilton's been uh, a little bit better. But again, you know, is it is it well? People are kind of are are people who are struggling giving up on Hamilton because the rents are increasing so much, um, and and so we we definitely need to. Um, 
not just sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, this is all, uh, you know, this is all great. We're, we're, we're headed towards a, a, a great economy. You know, if, if we're an economy where, um, where, where, where people are pushed out, um, that's, that's not a great economy at all. Well, and we have to juxtapose that against some of the stories that we're hearing from from economic development, and and those are real numbers and legitimate numbers too, about Hamilton's economic renaissance. And as you mentioned, how how number of publications on the conference board are, are looking to Hamilton right now as as one of the leaders in diverse economy and in a growing economy. But I guess the message out of this report is that's all great, but uh, that's only part of the story. Yeah, and and it's it, it's not even a report we've we've published yet. We're 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 going to publish something a bit more extensive. Right now, we've just put some stuff on social media in terms of the basic data, and um, and yeah, we've we, we've done previous reports, vital signs, um, exactly talking about that. How we need to improve our um, social sa- rebuild our social safety net, um, so that uh, you know to 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 reflect the changing workplace. We know that those pensions. Are, you know they're not easily going to come back, and so we have to build more public pensions. Um, all all these kinds of options to to um, reflect our changing workplace, and and not just pretend that the change isn't happening. Like let's let's react to those changes and improve uh, and improve our laws and our our public services for for people. So you, I guess, are going to get locked away in a room someplace with this report and and be told to come back out in a couple of days with an analysis, and you're going to go before council, right? Uh, not right away on this. <laughs> it takes a while to really digest it um, and and to get to to those trends. Um, but yeah, at some point we will definitely present this data to council. I know that they uh, appreciate uh, getting uh, you know fresh information about about the city as we all do. Always uh, great to get your perspective on this, Sarah. Thanks for taking the time for us today. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Sarah Mayo, Social Planning and Research Council, of course, at Hamilton. And, and like I say, there's a lot of good news stories about what's going on here, too. And, and we don't want to you know, overshadow those. But what this is, I think, is a stark reminder that there's still an awful lot of people that do need help. And uh, the social safety net that she talked about and, and others in this community have talked about is still very important and still clearly very much needed. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Listen, I want to talk about this uh, announcement for the CFL from the CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi uh, about effective immediately. Uh, all practices uh, will not have uh, pads, no more full contact practices, and they're actually going to extend the season, give everybody an extra week off during the season. Uh, to, to comment on that, I want to bring Scott Radley and of course, host of the Scott Radley Show every weeknight here on CHML, and of course, you read his fabulous writings in the uh, sports pages of The Spectator. How are you doing this morning, Scott? I'm great, Bill. How are you? Good. Listen, before we get into the CFL stuff, well, variations on that theme, uh, what do you make about this Johnny Manziel thing? This is a story that won't go away. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Um, it, it sounds to me very much like this guy wants to play in the CFL. I, I think what he wants is he wants to get back in the NFL, but he's going to use this as, a, as, as an audition, I guess, to get back, in the, which means he probably wants to play maybe one season up here. Well, Somewhere. of course. I, mean, every, I don't think that there's an American player, and this isn't insulting the Americans, I don't think there's an American player that when they're at home in Texas or Arkansas or California, looks and goes, you know what, I really aspire to a career in the CFL. If they come here, many, most all, see this as a springboard. Now, many of them get here and go, you know what, this is a great league, and I'm quite happy to stay here. Doug Flutie was the perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't think I don't think Johnny Manziel is sitting at home going, you know what? I'd really like a long, illustrious career in the CFL. This would be for him exactly what you just said. This would be a chance to 
show that he's cleaned up, that he's back to being Johnny football, that he's ready to go, and some NFL team can take a chance at him again. But to do that, he's he's got to get clearance. Uh, Ambrosi says, the commissioner says, that, well, he's got to show that he went through this uh, anger management and all this sort of stuff, too. Now, apparently he has, or so we're told, anyway. Is is there any team, quite aside from Hamilton, okay, because I, he's on their neg list, we get that, but but they always have the possibility of training those trading those rights. Is any team in this league going to take a shot at this guy? Well, uh, I, probably, probably, uh, and frankly, Bill, in large measure, because this year in the CFL, the, the quarterbacks were doing okay for half the season, and it's in the last couple of weeks that they're all starting to drop like flies, and so someone is going to need a quarterback. And, you know, Saskatchewan, Kevin Glenn is now hurt. Ottawa is hurt. Um, somebody will be willing to take a chance. If it's Hamilton, you know, they've got him on the neg list, but I do think they have to walk very carefully, and I'm not sure how they do this, because bringing in a guy with the background, and you talked about how he would have to take this anger management based on an alleged situation with domestic thing, this becomes more complicated for the Tiger Cats in the wake of the whole Art Bryles. Do you it think? It really does. Yeah. It really does. Other teams, and I'm not in any way defending or mi- minimizing or anything domestic situations, nothing like that, but for another team, if this was their first foray into this discussion, maybe they have a bit of a cleaner slate where they can somehow make this thing sound better. This is this is a very complicated situation for the Ticats if they bring him in two weeks after Armageddon as far as public relations goes on that front. But, I mean, there are other cities. I mean, I'm thinking of Montreal, for instance. I mean, you mentioned a couple of teams that need quarterbacks right now, but, I mean, you know, the Alouettes are going through a huge rebuilding. They just fired the coaching staff. You know, it, you could get lost in Montreal. Uh, the, uh, the people pay attention to football there. It's pretty big. But uh, the Alouettes, I think people would forgive them for doing just about anything now just to try to get back on the winning track. Well, BC just lost Travis Lule yeah. this season. Now they have a backup quarterback who has shown he can be pretty good. But they, you know, would BC want some – some stability or at least some depth at quarterback. You talk about Montreal. Ricky Ray has been beat up in Toronto this year. Uh, it, I mean, again, there are a lot of teams right now that have a need at quarterback. I think that, you know, for better or for worse, and it's often for worse, but in the world of sports, if you can play, we'll find a home for you. We'll, we'll find a way to rehabilitate you, to, uh, you a, as a player and as a person and as a character. Um, my concern is, I, he's Johnny Manziel was not great in the NFL. He hasn't played in a while, and I'm not sure in the modern CFL. Once upon a time, Johnny Manziel probably would have been prototypical, perfect quarterback for the CFL. Run around a lot, throw on the fly, wide open. You know, this is not the old CFL. It's tighter defensively. I'm not sure he is the star Doug Flutie version 2.0 that some people seem to be putting it with. Well, I just think that there's more to be written about this story. And, and oh, there's a lot more. So Sadly, we'll see. All right, let's, let's get into the, uh, the decision yesterday that uh, no more uh, full contact practices uh, in the CFL. The guys are just going to wear T-shirts and shorts and, uh, I guess, football helmets. I guess they're allowed yep, to wear yep. helmets. Uh, and then they're going to go out and knock the crap out of each other every weekend. Um, I, that sounds to me like they're going to get hurt more, not less. You know, it's an it's an interesting um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, your theory has, I, I think, it has some merit. 
Because if you're not practicing a certain way, then you go to full speed. Do you allow yourself, are you in a position to be more injured? Now, if this was minor football, if this was kids and they don't get to practice tackling or something, I would put more credence in that. By the time a guy becomes a professional, they've done enough tackling that they know how to do it. And the flip side well, of that I, I, is, I would argue, after watching the way a catch played last year, no, they don't. But, but be, let's, let's not go down that road. Um, the flip side to that, though, is, Bill, is that I, I tried to use the analogy of a boxer. If you are a boxer and every day when you go to train, you get into the ring and part of your training regimen is sparring with someone who is hitting you in the head every day, that is going to take something out of you. And you are, it's not just what happens in your fight every once in a while. It's the day-to-day accumulation. And so if you take this, and they don't practice in pads every day. It's already a rare Yeah, uh, that doesn't thing. happen all that much anyway. But if you can take this out, I just think the CFL, look, I, I really believe, and I don't know that they would acknowledge this. I don't know they want to acknowledge this. But I really believe it's, interest, or it's interesting that this comes two weeks after Steve Buescher and the Spec did his four-part series called Collision Course on yeah, concussions yeah. and other things. Maybe it's coincidental. But I really believe the CFL, you're looking at the NFL with the multi-billion dollar settlement. You're looking at a lawsuit in the CFL. You're looking at a lawsuit in the NHL. I think they are going out of their way, as they should, to say, we are doing everything possible to make our game safer for our players. A, because I'm not going to be so cynical to say the people behind this game don't care about the men who are playing. Let's give them some credit and say, you know, the people, they may have a business to operate, but they're also humans. I do believe that nobody wants to see men chewed up and spat out like we've seen in the past, but they also do have a business to run, and they don't want to be creating a scenario where someone walks into court, a lawyer walks into court as part of a class action lawsuit and says, not only did you do this back in the day before we knew everything about concussions? But now that we do, you're still doing this, which shows that you don't get it and you've done nothing to change it. I think they are doing everything they can to within what they can do in football. It's still a collision sport. As you say, Bill, you're still going to go out every week and beat the crap out of each other on the field. But I think you're trying to do everything you can in between to A, minimize injuries, B, make people safer and healthier, and C, try to reduce the, the, the possibility of a massive lawsuit in that one down the road. i uh, got about a minute left here. One of the other elements to this that Ambrosi talked about is now everybody gets a second bye week, which extends the season. Are they going to start the season earlier, or are we going to be playing the Grey Cup at Christmas Eve? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Um, for a while there, they were starting the season basically on July 1st, which seems somewhat yeah. appropriate to start it on Canada. I think they start a little earlier now. I would expect probably you want to go a little earlier. I mean, how many games do you really want to play in Winnipeg and Regina in November and December? Um, Scott, I got to tell you, I was at the Grey Cup last year in Toronto. It was pretty darn cold. Yeah. And, and yeah, don't, don't even bring up Winnipeg the year before. It's. Uh, I would expect that the players and the fans, quite frankly, you know, it's fun if you're a fan to go to a game for the first half when it's 9 million below zero. <laughs> the second half of those games are not a lot of fun. When you have literally frozen to your seat and you can't feel your fingers or your toes, there's not any amount of beer that can thaw you out. It's They would much prefer, you would have, I think, way more fans the further 
warm you move it as opposed to the further cold you move it. But the, you know what? That extra bye week, it's the same thing. It's recovery time, and I applaud them. I think, you know, Rand, I know you got to go, but Randy Ambrosi, I give the man credit because he is doing something that we don't see any other commissioner in any other sport do, and that is changing the rules in the middle of the season if he truly believes that these are for the betterment of the game. We don't see that anywhere else. I applaud him for that. That's a good move. Yeah, I do. He's, he's done a great job. Uh, well, stepping on the browse thing, too. There's uh, a lot to be said for what he's done in a short period Absolutely, of time. Absolutely, for sure. Scott Radley, you can hear him 7 o'clock tonight here on CHML. Of course, read him in the specs. Uh, thanks, as always, Scotty. We'll talk again soon. Anytime, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.